0: Right. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Was the worship great? Isn't that awesome? Yeah, yeah. So appreciate that. Um, we. Uh, I'm. I'm Josh. Has been said. Pastor Josh, one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, it's good to meet you. Good to have you. If you're online worshiping, it's good to have you there as well. Um, <clears throat> yeah, we are in a series. Kind of uh, the last couple weeks of winding down our series called "The Benefit of Doubt." And so uh today I'm going to be talking about the Bible, talking about the words of God. So <clears throat> um as I talk you'll notice I'm I'm a little sick, but one of my one of my kids shared um the vast bounty of Petri dish that exists with we have a couple boys. <clears throat> we were actually uh we were gone last week. I still missed uh being here last week and seeing you all. And uh, I know you were in good hands. Uh, Justin was preaching for us and, and uh, heard everything went well, but I so miss being here with you all. We were in Colorado. Uh, I think about this time, we were somewhere on the Kansas-Colorado border. Um, we uh, got to go hiking, and, and uh, my son John and I went and hiked a 14er. Uh, it was really, really fun, uh, but yeah, on the way back, I started to kind of get little stuff in my in my throat. Uh, one of my sons uh, just uh, had to dock his allowance a little bit, but... Uh, because we, we how else do you deal with it, right? I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but no, we, were, we had a great time. Very fortunate to be able to go and get one more trip in before all the snow hits. And uh, so now we're back. And uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about the scripture today. What is, um, I think what is challenging when we talk about uh, having seasons uh, of doubt or just uh, uh, questions or, or skepticisms about life and faith is that a large portion of that can often focus on the Scripture. And yet, um, when we gather, we gather weekly, uh, and then we gather you know, throughout the week, uh, form groups, uh, uh, midweek meetup, we, we gather around and, and we, we talk about Scripture. And so it can be very challenging for many of us who have questions or, or challenges or, or just problems with the Bible uh, to be gathered so often where we are so Bible-centric. And so we just want to name that challenge and that tension for all of us. Because I know, sitting here, I, I know many of us have questions about the Bible. I myself have worked through many uh, of my own issues and, and questions about the Bible. And there's still many, many more. And so I don't, I don't know that today is going to be our one-stop shop to like answer every and all questions about Scripture. But what we want to do is, is name those tensions uh, name maybe some of those problems that we're having, and then invite more of conversation. Because why? Uh, part of the reason of why we gather and we gather with scripture and open the Bible is to name those things and to de- together in connection in community walk those things out. Even holding uh, uh, the the tension of like unanswered prayer and unanswered uh, questions about the scripture. And so, if you know, basically. Um, to summarize all of that, if you have questions about Scripture, you have landed in the right place. You are among the right kind of people because I think probably most everyone here is in that same similar place. So we don't have to hide. That's the good news. We don't have to uh, uh, withdraw or we don't have to go off by ourselves and try and figure this out. We can do this in community because I, I believe a couple things about Mosaic is that no one's rushing to push you towards an answer for yourself? You're welcome to be on a journey of skepticism and doubt. I think that's what this whole ser- series is about. You're welcome to bring all those questions to each other, uh, to to the pastors, and and name those things, and just live in that tension as, as but as hard as it can be sometimes. So, with that. Um, uh, yeah, there's a couple ways I I, I thought about kind of uh, approaching this. One one actually was taking a quiz: is this a, a Taylor Swift uh, lyric or is this a Bible verse? Um, you know, just in honor of the Eras tour uh, film coming out, which I shamelessly will ab- uh, admit I did go see already. So um, I just I couldn't pull all that together. Although, thank you, Sally. Sally, I get I get some big claps from uh, the teens among us. Hopefully. Um, because uh, there, there are, there are like there are lyrics like "Look what you made me do." It's very much a Taylor Swift lyric, but there's also Paul saying, "I the things I don't want to do I do, and the things I do want to do I don't do." You know, so uh, "Hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me." Paul saying, "I'm the chief of sinners." You know, so like there's a lot of compatibility between that, and so I know I'm sorry, Karen. She's kind of shaking her head at me. I'm gonna move on now. Okay, all right. Um. I think, I think, though, for, for many of us, what we can resonate, and, and not to just separate us into two camps, like there's a lot of people along the spe- spectrum, some of us actually grew up in an environment where the Bible was taught with authenticity, and we were pointed toward God in a healthy way, our questions were welcomed, and people patiently and lovingly walked with us through those things. We, some of us grew up in those church environments. And I'm so thankful that those places exist. And yet some of us grew up in churches where questions were not welcomed, where it was kind of like, like people held their breath. If you said, yeah, but I have, I have questions about that. Um, the Bible was wielded like a bludgeon against certain segments of the population and walls were built really, really high to keep certain people out and to keep you in. And kind of like this controlling environment where you just believed what you were told. Because the people in power had all the answers and you weren't allowed to question them. Otherwise, you were questioning God himself. The Bible has been used on some of us in this room and watching online that very way. And so there is a lot of tension when we talk about the scripture. There's different reactions based on your different experience with church with pastoral ministry, and with other Christians in the body of Christ. So we are aware of that, and we are going to welcome all of those together because we need each other. I think God has has brought us together so that we can help walk this out together and walk towards God in a healthy way and maybe, maybe set some of our baggage down, maybe let finally some of that go, maybe heal, maybe bring some of those questions to the surface to allow God to speak to that hurt part of ourselves, okay? So currently, the Holy Post podcast, which is just a really good podcast that a lot of us uh, uh, in, on staff listen to, um, the Holy Post podcast is doing a series where they're interviewing um, different authors, uh, ministry leaders, artists, etc., cetera, um, and they're asking a question to each of them. Why are you still a Christian? Because among the people in this, this mini-series, uh, they have been rejected. They have been harmed by church leadership. They have been basically pushed out of their uh, place of influence. I'm talking people like uh, Lecrae, uh, Russell Moore, uh, Beth, Al, uh, not Beth, uh, Kristen Kobes, like, some people you may or may not be familiar with. But you could probably hear your story or someone's story that you know in their story. And they're asking, why are you still a Christian? And here's what Jamar Tisby, author, um, And uh, he's not a pastor, he's an author, and he's he's a professor, I believe. He says this, To be a Christian means to be a Christ follower. And in the most difficult moments, I've had to remember, this is all about Jesus. Whatever his followers do, whatever we have made of religion, we have got to deal with this Jesus character. And that has been the most refreshing, the most sensitive, the most intimate time I've had in my faith remembering that at the end of the day, a religion is not about a set of beliefs. It's not about acquiring certain kinds of power. It's about a relationship. And that's what I have. That's my one sermon everywhere I go is remember that it's all about Jesus. And when we're discouraged, when we're frustrated, when we're in pain, when we feel that betrayal, we have to remember Jesus' words. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And that he knows what it's like to be betrayed by his closest friends, his own disciples, to the point of death. There's nothing that we've experienced with any kind of trauma that Jesus can't come alongside us and have an understanding of. And that's what has kept me. That is why I'm, I'm still a Christian. Jesus is why I'm still Christian. And, and for many of us, even some of us who are thinking, I could just leave this all behind. We know we still have to deal with Jesus. We can't get away from him. No matter what's been said or done to us, no matter where we feel connected or disconnected, it's the person of Jesus that we know has just captured our attention and our hearts, and we have to deal with him. And so, because that is what it's like for many of us, we still come back to the Bible. Because it's in the Bible where we find the words... And promises and actions of Jesus, we find him, his character, his authority laid out for us and and yet there 's this wrestling about like who Jesus is, how he 's impacted us, and how the church has used the Word of God to affect us and there 's a deep wrestling there 's a deep wrestling with that. How do we deal with the Bible when it's been so misused throughout history? When people have wielded it as a weapon instead of a welcome? How do we deal with the scripture when so many people disagree? I mean, haven't you just felt in your life sometimes like there's no way I can understand the Bible? People have been arguing about this thing for millennia. Like, there's some people that just love to sit around and argue about the Bible, and that just seems so boring to me and such a waste of time. I just want Jesus. Haven't you thought that before? Haven't you thought like, man, how many sermons am I going to sit through? My life kind of is the same, and I still have the big same problem. Like, what is the deal with the Bible? And then we come across verses like this in Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even... To dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. That's like, that's like, whoa, that's, that's like serious, right? Like God sees and judges all and the word of God divides. And then you go, but like, when's the last time I felt that? Like, when's the last time I felt the conviction of the spirit versus just somebody guilting me into doing something, Right? Because we want to know, not just if, if it's true or if it's good, but we want to know, does it work? Does the Bible actually work in my life? And so there's a lot of wrestling, even in the church right now, that people are having, that you yourselves may be having. So to plot a way forward, I, I want to offer this uh, quote. This is from Peter N's Inspiration Incarnation, his book. The problems many of us feel regarding the Bible may have less to do with the Bible itself and more to do with our own preconceptions. I've found again and again that listening to how the Bible itself behaves and suspending preconceived notions as much as that is possible about how we think the Bible ought to behave is refreshing, creative, exciting, and spiritually rewarding one must observe how Scripture does behave and draws conclusions from that. We are to place our trust in God who gave us the Scripture, not in our own conceptions of how Scripture ought to be. I mean, I could, I could use some of that. I don't know about you. I could use a view of Scripture that is refreshing, creative, exciting, and spiritually rewarding. Like, I crave that. I crave that, don't you? To, to open the Scripture, to sit in front of it, and, and instead of read what I want from it, have it actually speak to me. Have, have God the Spirit actually quicken and aliven this for me. To give me a word that I need. Or to open my eyes to who God really is. To let the scales drop from my eyes about who I would rather God be. But he's really like this and I need to let my preconceived notions go. Like So that's a prayer for us, is that the Bible will become alive again for anyone who sees it as dead. Or that for any of us who, who think it's uh, just a checkbox, because we can get into that mode of like, well, I've got to read the Bible because that's just what good Christians do. I'm actually not interested in what good Christians do. I, I think we could settle for a little bit more dangerous Christianity, honestly, and not what nice, good Christians do in the Midwest. I think that's part of our preconceived notions is that we have an image of what a Christian is like and that doesn't exactly fit Jesus perfectly who flipped over tables and said some harsh things. That's not Kansas nice. And so if we have a preconceived image of like I've got to fit in this nice Christian box and Jesus is constantly trying to get in our life and flip over tables, there's an incongruence there. And we've got to let go of who we think we want God to be. To get to a preconceived idea of who we want to be and what we want our lives to be. To just sit in front of God and open the scripture and say, do your will in my life at any cost. That's what I want to sign up for. Anyway, that was for free. That's not even in my notes. So, um, <laughs> um, so we, we must first understand the Bible. And, and some of this is just not going to be new, but it's a good reminder but if you're maybe newer to your faith or it's been a while since you've been in church, just kind of good to catch up on. Misunderstanding the Bible's not just one book. It's a library of books. It's a library of books written by dozens of people over thousands of years, having the same storyline that God created us for a relationship and he rescues us to restore that relationship. That's an oversimplification But as clear as I can give you in my current cold state, that's what the Bible is about. It's about God created us. Not because he wanted us, or excuse me, not because he needed us, but because he wanted to be close and have people to share himself with, to love. And that we went wayward and he is spending the rest of, of whatever he has to go after us time and time again to bring us back into that relationship to share himself with. So the the Bible is a library of books. It contains poetry, apocalypse, narrative, and letters. Scholars and commentators and everyday people like you and me have considered it. Uh, They found the overarching narrative that I just mentioned, how how God has created and sustained all of this that we experience in everyday life. And that rescue involved as its crowning achievement the person and work of his son, Jesus. Um, that's what it's all about. If you want to know what the Bible is all about, it all points to, forward to, and back to Jesus. As the whole purpose of everything that we are. Why we're alive. Why we have life in the per- first place. Is that if you want to know what God is like in the Bible, look at Jesus. He is perfect theology. He is perfect doctrine. Okay? Gordon Fee says this in his book, Hermeneutics and the Gender Debate. God did not choose to give us a series of timeless, non-culture-bound theological propositions to be believed and imperatives to be obeyed. He didn't give us a checkbox, in other words, a checklist, to check off that you're doing good enough for God, okay? Rather, he chose to speak his eternal word this way, in historically particular circumstances and in every kind of literary genre. By the very way God gave us this word, he locked in the ambiguity one should not fight God and insist that he give us his word in, one, in another way or, as we are more apt to do, rework his word along theological or cultural prejudgments that turn it into a minefield of principles, propositions, or imperatives, but denude it of its ad hoc character as truly human. And the ambiguity is part of what God did in giving us the word in this way. In other words, the word of God is mysterious. Like, there's some, there some clear things that it teaches that there is a God that he created us good, that we fell in sin, that he has promised and has restored us through Jesus, and Jesus is coming back. It's very clear, those things. And then the rest of it is kind of ambiguous. It's a mystery. Why? Because if you had a to-do list to tack up on your, you know, pull up on your notes app or put it on your fridge, you could just go check off, the to-do list of serving God, and it would never take a relationship. It would never take you wrestling with the text to say, what is God's will for my life? God, where are you taking me? Where are you guiding me? It would never take a wrestling of silence and doubt that actually brings us closer and strengthens our faith. If you had a very clear to-do list, that's what you would have a relationship with. All the Enneagram ones know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, we're just kind of born. I have lists of my lists. That's how nerdy I am. And it's very easy for me to get in task mode and do the things and forget it's about relationship with my family. I'm doing the to-do list to serve people in our church and to have connection with my wife and my boys. And to, to remember to reach out to my friends to check on them and get coffee. Like, I could just do the lists. But God gave us his word written in a library of books so that our hearts would actually say, I don't really understand this super well. Can you help me, God? Can you guide me? Can you illuminate your word to me? Okay? The Bible is not simply a rule book for life or an instruction manual of how to carry on in God's absence. All of Scripture weaves together to form a grand story inspired by God himself and given the authority of revealing his great plan. It's important to be aware of how How we approach the Bible and what expectations we have for it, because there there have been many of us disappointed in God for not upholding some expectation that we placed on him based on what we thought we read in Scripture. We approach God through his word on his terms, not ours. And in fact, if you read uh, back to the gospel narratives, Jesus is always having problems with these people called the Pharisees because they had rules on rules on rules of how they were they thought everybody should behave so that the nation could be blessed. And Jesus he comes to them and says, "Wow, you guys really know the Bible forwards and backwards, but you're kind of missing a key ingredient because God is standing right in front of you and you have no idea." He says it like this, John 5:37. He said, "You have never heard his voice" Uh, there's, he's speaking to the Pharisees about God. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So in other words, it's possible to have a relationship with a book in a way that we think we have a relationship with God. And miss God in the midst, working his work right in front of us. Jesus is saying, you know the scriptures. That's such a good thing. But what you fail to do is actually bring it to God for relationship. You're just busy knowing the scripture. You're just busy arguing about the finer points of theology. You treat it as as a guidebook or a rule book or something where God's not around so you behave this certain way. And you forget the relationship was with God himself. The the book, the scriptures, the Bible is meant to facilitate the relationship in a deeper way. It's not meant to be the relationship. God has so much, like, we just, we know that God is bigger than a book, right? You cannot contain God to one book. Or to, you know, all the books in the world. And yet, this one is the one that ushers us towards him. It unveils to us his plan of redemption, of salvation. And it should facilitate a deeper connection. And yet most, no, I don't know, most, I shouldn't say that. Many people stop at just memorizing or debating. And they forget, like, you're missing the forest from the trees. This book is all about Jesus. I and mean, we sang, we shouted, we we. we we did that during worship, right? The point isn't to just sing to the ceiling or sing to the you know, the good-looking worship leaders. Y'all are good-looking, too. Like, That's not the point. The point is that it goes past that to God. And our mind is set on God. I know it's hard. I know there are distractions. I know you don't know all the words to the songs or you can't like, find that verse that you're thinking. Of. I know it's hard to push through that. But the whole point is to push through that, to experience God, To know Jesus experientially. I I remember I I was teaching um, youth group. uh, like My first gig was youth group uh, Sunday school teacher. And I asked them, and I was a know-it-all 25-year-old. And they were teenagers, so they thought I was a know-it-all 25-year-old. But I asked them, I had a great question one time. I had a great question one time. Then in fact, um, years later, um, uh, a young lady came up to me, ran into me in the airport and said, that question you asked me changed my life. Like, I really had to go think about what that question was. I, I legit probably stole it from somebody else, like another preacher I was listening to. But I thought I thought it was pretty good. So I asked her this. I asked the whole youth group this. If, if, you did, if you didn't have any verses to quote or anybody else's experience to use, how would you describe Jesus to me? So in other words, who is Jesus to you? Without giving me a bumper sticker answer, Uh, quoting me a bit of theology or telling me who your parents say that he is, who do you know Jesus to be for yourself? How have you experienced him? Now, the Bible is meant to facilitate that, to, to push us towards a relationship so that we have an answer to that question. Who is Jesus? Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am, right? Who is Jesus to you? If you didn't have the Bible to, to go and quote from, if you didn't have your parents or your spouses or your coworkers example of Jesus, who is Jesus for you? And it's important to backtrack and still ask, like, does that fit with the revelation of Jesus in Scripture? That is important. But my whole point is Scripture is trying to get you connected to God and not just stop at words on a page. Though is, though, though, those are important as they are. Okay? Jesus says, these are, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The life is in Jesus. The Bible facilitates that relationship. I'm so thankful. So, so don't hear me like taking the Bible down at all or, or saying it's not important or it's not necessary. I want to elevate it, but never above God himself, right? It's interesting to me that the early church had such a deep relationship with God through the Spirit, and yet they still lacked the Bible at that time. The canon wasn't closed for hundreds of years after that. They had not collected the letters that were being written. The Holy Spirit was alive in the early church, and as that was being worked out, they were collecting and writing scripture and, and and closing that canon, but they were using even the Old Testament to understand oh those promises here 's how they 're being fulfilled in our midst. They used all of that to connect with Jesus himself okay so <clears throat> let me let 's move forward a little bit I, I, I just want to um, i 've got a long quote here coming up, but I, for those of us that, that do struggle about like understanding. The narrative and, and how the scripture works together. Um, I like to think of, of scripture sort of like a Shakespearean play with five acts. That's an easy way that you can look at the overall meta narrative of the scripture to, to find your place in it, to find the story of God in the midst of it, okay? So the Bible is a play with five acts. It starts with creation and then fall. And I think it's important because many. Churches, streams of Christianity actually start with the fall of humanity. They talk first and foremost about the sinfulness of, of of humanity, and yet we have to remember God created us good. God created us in His image. We were set perfectly in a garden with perfect relationship with Him to tend it and to connect with Him and to serve Him. Okay, so it's creation and then fall, and then we have Israel, which is the promise. ...of the coming Deliverer, okay? So creation, fall, Israel, or promise. Then Jesus, his work, his ministry, and then the church. And the majority of the New Testament is Jesus... ...and then how Jesus is working through his church... ...and the future promises that are still to come, okay? So the Bible is primarily the redemptive story of God... ...a story that has been unfolding like a five-act Shakespearean play beginning with creation, disrupted by the fall, moved forward by God's covenant with Israel, realized in Jesus, before being passed along to the church for its faithful performance of the fifth and final act. Okay, So N.T. Wright says this. So settle in. N.T. Wright's super smart. This is so packed full of stuff, but it's really, really good. He writes in an article called How Can the Bible Be Authoritative? The Bible then is designed to function through human beings, through the church, through people who still... Uh, living still by the Spirit, have their life molded by this Spirit-inspired book. What for? Well, as Jesus said in John 20, As the Father sent me, even so I send you. He sends the church into the world, in other words, to be and to do for the world what he was and did for Israel. There, I suggest, is the key hermeneutical bridge. That it's the interpretive bridge. By this, we are enabled to move from the bare storyline that speaks of Jesus as the man who lived and died and did these things in Palestine 2,000 years ago into an agenda for the church. Authority in the church then means that the church's uh, authority with scripture, with scripture in its hands and heart to speak and act for God in his world. It is not simply the way that we may say in the church, are we allowed to do this or that? Where are the lines drawn for our behavior? Or must we believe the following 17 doctrines if we are to be really sound? God wants the church to lift up its eyes and see the field ripe for harvest and go out armed with the authority of Scripture, not just to get its own life right within a Christian ghetto, but to use the authority of Scripture to declare the world world authoritatively that Jesus is Lord. Story authority, as Jesus knew Only too well, or all too well, as T. Swift might say, is the authority that really works. Throw a rule book at people's heads or offer them a list of doctrines, and they can duck or avoid it or simply disagree and go away. Tell them a story, though, and you invite them to come into a different world. You invite them to share a worldview or, better still, a God view. That actually is what the parables are all about. They offer, as all genuine Christian storytelling does, a worldview which, as someone comes into and finds how compelling it is, Quietly shatters the worldview that they were, already, were in already. Stories determine how people see themselves and how they see the world. Stories determine how they experience God and the world and themselves and others. Great revolutionary movements have told stories about the past and present and future. They have invited, invited people to see themselves in that light, and people's lives have been changed. If that happens at a merely human level, how much more when it is God himself, the creator, breathing through his word. So creation fall, Israel, Jesus, and church. That's the story, the story that we inhabit and the story that we have to tell. Not a list of rules of what God wants or doesn't want, but it's the promises that are available and they're good for everyone who would grab a hold of them. Okay, so um, I want to move, just give you a a couple practical things, right? So this has been sort of the abstract, the big part of, like, what is the Bible? How do we read the Bible? Um, a couple practical things is how do we actually study the Scripture? When it comes to actually opening up the Bible and reading it, what do we do with it? So I'll tell you just one thing, and you don't have to do this. One thing I've done for years in different size groups... Personally, to my, with myself, I've had some discipleship groups that I do this alongside of. When I read a portion of Scripture, I'm looking to answer four questions. And I have a journal with a nice fountain pen. And I sit and I journal my thoughts. And it's not, it's, sometimes it's, it's harder to get the answers to these questions. But I believe what God wants is us really wrestling, sitting with Him and asking hard questions. And so for me, it helps me to kind of have a script or a little bit of a system to keep um, you know, regularly digging into the Bible. So I open my journal up, and I, have, I read a portion of Scripture. It might be a couple chapters. It might be a couple verses. And ask these four questions of what I read. I ask, who is God, as revealed by this text? I ask, what has He done, specifically as it points to Jesus? Who are we in light of this? And how are we to live in response to this? Okay? You, you might even take a picture of those. Or adopt your own questions that you can ask regularly of what you're reading. Okay? But I want to ask, who is God? What does this tell me about who God is? What has he done? What has he done in the person and work of Jesus on my behalf that I couldn't do for myself? Who am I? Who, what does this tell me about my need for God? Or where he's guiding me, what his plan is for my life. And then how am I to live? What am I supposed to do? The Bible is not just for information. It's meant to penetrate our hearts and affect our behavior. Paul says knowledge puffs up. Knowledge just makes us more egotistical. I know more Bible than someone else. So what? You act like a fifth grader, right? (laughs) Like, Like we need to get just kind of like, honest with each other i've been a christian for 35 years well that's great my son serves more than you do in church like what's the disconnect like i've driven with you in the car my you know you get cut off and it's like you're sending people all sorts of places in the universe like what is going on right the the scripture is to lead us into an encounter with god come to me so that i can give you life is what jesus says and it affects my behavior my attitude, how I treat other people, specifically people in my family and close to me in friendships, how I serve you as one of your pastors. Like the Bible, that's what it's for, to help me understand God, my need for him, and how he wants me to pivot, to change, to repent, to look more like Jesus in my everyday life, okay? Now with that, when we get around, when we get around like our our forum groups or we have Conversations over coffee i've found that it 's helpful to understand that there are three layers or three levels of doctrine because not everything is of first importance. Paul talks about their doctrine there's there 's belief about God is written in the Bible that it 's necessary to tease apart and there are some that are more important to get than others okay and so we are going to be a church that that isn 't going to get bogged down in secondary and tertiary conversations and debates. I find that's for, like, young and inspiring theologians that haven't quite figured out how to love their neighbor as they love themselves, if they love themselves at all. So they, th- they sit around, just argue about the Bible, and it kind of stunts them in a certain stage of maturity that isn't very mature, okay? So these three layers of doctrine, um, I like to refer to them as pencil, ink, and blood, okay? Opinion, just opinions about God, opinions about how the church should be, about people's lives, your own life. Opinion is written, written in pencil. It can be erased. It should be erased in a lot of ways. It's like carpet color. You know, should the pastor wear jeans or not? You know, sorry, it's going to happen. Uh, you know, should the pastor wear all black except white? I don't know, you know, that you have, might have an opinion on my wardrobe about when I'm speaking on behalf of God to you all. That's okay. It's just really not in Scripture. It's, that's, a, that's a tertiary or that's a way down the list sort of thing. You may have opinions because you grew up in churches of certain styles and they did ministry or they did worship or they did whatever certain ways, and you, you kind of moralize that and gone, Well, every church should do that because look at all the good it did for me and my church. Well, the thing is, like, if we really open up Scripture, it doesn't have a lot to say about church buildings. Pastor salaries, pastors' dress—you know how long church services should should go or shouldn't go. That's okay to have opinions. We just have to understand that's just the way I see things, and I'm very—I hold them very loosely. Okay. Secondly, doctrine is written in ink. Ink is semi-permanent; it's not easy to to erase. But there are secondary doctrine that are important. It it is—I I read the Bible and I see certain things certain ways. And there are entire denominations and streams of Christianity formed around secondary doctrines. I have a belief that says secondary doctrines should not divide us because they're not primary. Secondary doctrines, things like the timing of the rapture, the existence of spiritual gifts. um, I don't know, a lot of those, like even, even distinctives that we hold closely here, like women in ministry, that's super important to us that's still not a primary doctrine although it, it does affect half of us and i want to be really like kind and clear about those things and say we have some you know we won't we won't kick anybody out over differences of this but it might be harder to worship because we have two women pastors and we celebrate that and we hear them preach regularly if that is is hard for you because of how you grew up or how you read scripture it might be okay to find a church that has all-male. Now, we can have deep, profound conversations. We can agree to disagree and still hold fellowship and hold the tension together, and I'm comfortable with that. It's the same with all these other secondary doctrines that we just say, hey, we we can't know for sure until we meet Jesus, but here's the best of our ability to interpret Scripture. We're always going to be kind, we're going to be open-handed, and we're going to say, hey, I could be wrong on this. And yet, there's dogma. That's written in blood, and what I mean by written in blood is that the martyrs of the church throughout history have given their lives to defend these core doctrines, and it's these core doctrines that really form the orthodox historical teachings of the church. It's things like I've already mentioned: there is a God; we believe in the one true God, who exists eternally, co and equally in three persons of the Trinity. We believe that we were created good. And yet we fell in, into sin. And God promised and, and gave us a deliverer in the name of Jesus, his son, who gave his life to redeem us. He, gave, he did for us what we, we can never do for ourselves. And all of our sins are forgiven when we trust in the person and work of Jesus, who sits current, right now at the right hand of the Father in human form, fully God and fully human, and is coming back one day, To set up fully his kingdom on the earth. Those are, in a nutshell, a lot of the historical, blood, orthodox doctrine of the church. People have given their lives. Not many people have given their lives that I know of on the timing of the rapture or spiritual gifts. I I think probably some women have given their lives to church leadership. But there's still a distinction there that we make. Okay? Now the problem is, and why I bring all of this up, is that people are sneaky. And sometimes they want to put secondary doctrine up to primary doctrine. Or they want to sneak opinion and say, the church has to do this to follow Jesus faithfully. And it's like, whoa, 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 let's back up. So when we're trying to sneak doctrine to a higher level or to minimize doctrine to a lower level, we get into a lot of trouble. And so again, we have to constantly be back to the word, to the Bible to say, show me. Like, I would encourage you, don't believe what I say. Find it for yourself in the Bible. Do you know when Jesus comes back, when you stand before him and give account for your life, my pastor said is not going to be a good explanation for what you believe. I appreciate it. I I thank you that you're listening to us. But I'm not perfectly correct all the days of my life. Ask my family. Okay? My hope for you is that the Bible is alivened and quickened in you, And you wrestle with God over these things and you find it for yourself so you can stand confidently, humbly, and lovingly in front of Jesus to say you were the whole point of everything. Everything else was bonus in my life. And I believe this about you because I read it in your your word. Okay? So um, we're going to wrap up in just a couple minutes. But I know there are some of us who just, you would ask me, if we were sitting down for coffee, you're like, so seriously, Josh, like, you've seen all the, the turmoil that people who, quote-unquote, believe the Bible have made over the years, right? Like, why do you still believe the Bible is the Word of God? So honestly, if we were sitting across from coffee and you asked me that question, like, why do you believe the Bible, Josh? I would, and I don't, I don't think this probably will convince anybody, but I'll, I'll say two things. And you know me, that actually means four things, but I'll, say, I'll start with Two things. <laughs> I would say, I am, I'm deeply sorry. I'm deeply sorry for what people have done in the name of God using the Bible that has neg- negatively affected, like many of you. I, kn- I know many of your stories. I- I'm sorry that people excluded you. Exclu- you saw other friends or groups excluded, rejected, because people quoted a Bible verse. That's so... Hurtful and harmful. I, I'm really sorry. When, when, when you see, you know, I don't know why it's young dudes, but it's sometimes just a lot of young dudes sit around and, and coffee shops and debate stupid. It's not stupid. Okay, let me back up. Minutia about scripture and don't give a rip about anybody around them. That is so irritating and it's hurtful. And I'm so sorry. I've been that guy. Ben's talked about being that guy. We are super sorry to have contributed to the lameness of Christianity and just being about debating doctrine and not actually helping people. I'm sorry for the way that women and minorities have been marginalized, quoting, you know, ha- having Bible verses quoted to them to tell them about all the things that they can't do. I'm so sorry about that. I'm sorry, honestly, like... I know I didn't start wars, but I know like white dudes in power disproportionately have created problems in the world with a Bible in their hand. And I am so sorry for that. So that's what I would tell you if we were sitting across each other from coffee. And I'd, I would tell you, I would tell you a few more things. Uh, I, I believe the Bible because. I think history has shown its reliability. We have, um, we have more authenticated monographs of early copies of, of, of Scripture than any other document from antiquity. Like we have almost 6,000 copies of like, manuscripts from the first couple hundred years. Like people who knew people who knew people who knew people who wrote it down and could, like, check each other. That's more than, like, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like, all of those documents of antiquity, we have more copies of the Bible that, are, that point to its reliability and consistency over time. And when we find discrepancies among those different monographs, they're they're minor points of doctrine, they don't affect any major claims of Christianity or promises of Jesus. So I think, when I look at history, I think it's reliable that the Bible is true. Um, I, think, I, b- I believe it because it's its usefulness. I think the Bible actually works. And I don't want to slip into a total pragmatism, but I actually do want to know, well, does it do the thing that it says it's going to do? Um, the Bible, I believe, is to be not just read, but experienced. And what I mean by that is um, those who read the Bible, even once in a while, like once a week, show remarkable increase in character formation and in connection with other human beings. Like people who read the Bible, even every once in a while, become better people who look more like Jesus. I'm not talking about they crack commentaries, they memorize five verses a week. I'm just talking about people who sit with an open Bible in front of them and they they commit to do it, even semi-consistently, end up being more loving human beings. And then thirdly, I believe the Bible because I think it's trustworthy. I believe the Bible because Jesus believed the Bible. He quoted Old Testament scripture all the time. Jesus, we we don't have uh, verses that that show him like memorizing or going to Hebrew school or any of that stuff. He just, he did it because all the other, especially young boys, did it at that time. He was steeped in scripture and Jesus quoted it as if he believed it. And I'll just be honest, like sometimes I know I'm in my head a lot, but sometimes if Jesus said it, it's good enough for me. And if Jesus believed it, I think it's just good enough for me. Anybody that can predict his own death and then rise from the dead to prove it, like I just think that person's trustworthy. I'm just gonna believe what they're gonna say. And Jesus is that guy, okay? So my prayer for you, is that is it's the same one I pray for myself, the same one that I pray for my wife and my sons. It's that God give us fresh eyes and open hearts to hear you and experience Jesus. That's what I want for us. Fresh eyes and open hearts to sit with an open Bible and say, give me more of Jesus. That's what I want. In fact, Jesus welcomed that. In the message in Matthew 11, I quote this all the time. So hopefully we all memorize it at some point. He says this, are you tired? Are you worn out? Don't raise your hand. He just knows, okay? Are you burned out on religion? Are you, are you burned out on checklists, on to-do lists, on just doing the thing without a connection to God? Are, are you burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and, and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I think that's so good. Amen. Amen to that. So, as the I'll have the worship team come on up and the communion servers. Here's how I want to invite you to put this into practice. To ask yourself in what ways do I need to let go of my preconceived notions of the Bible and simply come to Jesus? Come to Jesus with and through the Bible. Thank you for listening to the Mosaic Church podcast. For more teachings, resources, and other news, please visit mosaicmhk.com.